I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Book Chat, the podcast where we chat about books, but only books which are at least two years old. It's good to be back. The response to our last episode on Bridget Jones and High Fidelity has been absolutely incredible. And we're chuffed that people enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. A real crowd pleaser. Something for all the family there. And we've had loads of emails. Loads. There's one I particularly liked from Fenny, who liked our chat about how Bridget Jones is actually not really the mess that she's portrayed as. And she actually suggests that the fact that we would now classify Bridget Jones as relatively successful highlights how generally expectations for adulthood have decreased for the millennial generation and below in terms of what the average woman and people in general can expect to achieve by their 30s with house prices and the cost of living being so high. So true. That is such a good point. We also had an email from Amina who said that she is also a weirdo. Uh, and is looking forward to reading Shark Heart, which I was talking about last month. And on the subject of aquatic interspecies love, uh, she's asked asked us if we've read The Pisces by Melissa Broder. And we were actually talking about this recently, weren't we, Pandora? It's a, it's a book about a, a woman falling in love with a merman, kind of half sexy, half sad. Um, I liked it. I actually preferred uh, Melissa Broder's next book, Milk Fed. What do, what do you think? I really like Melissa Broder's internet work if that's what you would call it. Her Twitter handle, So Sad Today, I thought was great. Pisces wasn't hugely for me, but it did do really well. So it was clearly for a lot of people. Bobby, what are you reading right now? Right now, nothing because it's so hot that I am mainly melting (laughs) in a puddle without the impetus to do anything like reading. But I can finally talk about one of my favourite books I have read recently. Uh, It just won the Nota Bene Prize, which I was on the judging panel for. It's called When I Sing Mountains Dance by a Catalan author called Irene Sola. It's this joyous celebration of Catalan culture. It's all set in the Pyrenees Mountains, told by voices through a load of generations. But it's also told by the world around them. So the first chapter is from the point of view of a storm cloud. There's one from a deer, one from a dog. There's even one told by the mountains themselves, complete with geological diagrams. Well, we have said it once. I've said it twice. I've said it three times. There are so many books out there. For the likes of you. My favourite chapter actually is from the point of view of a basket of mushrooms, which couldn't be couldn't be more <laughs> me. Um, what are what are you reading right now? Genuinely think you're trolling me sometimes. I'm sure it is really good though, and congratulations to it on winning the prize. I just read some great proofs by Bobby Palmer and Dolly Alderton. Pre <laughs> pre-order both my talented pod spouses, new books now. I didn't actually know you were reading that, so I think once we once we stop recording, I'm going to have to ask your thoughts. And if you, the listener, want to read my next book, Small Hours, about a, a young man, his fractured family, and the fox that changes everything, it's out next March, and you can pre-order it from wherever you like to get your books, or I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, don't worry. I'm definitely going to be sharing my favourite pages with you on WhatsApp as soon as I stop for one second. <laughs> 
also since we last recorded, I read Barbara Kingsolver's new one, Demon Copperhead, which just won the Pulitzer. And it really is flipping brilliant. It's a retelling of David Copperfield set in Virginia, rural Virginia, in the 1980s at the start of the opioid crisis. Bobby, any plans to read it? How can I make you read it? So my mum didn't like it, but my friend, my friend did like it, and you have just tipped the balance to two to one. So I'm gonna have to read it. Regular listeners, you know the drill. But if you're new here, we specialise in meaty book chat, so spoilers are inevitable. I thought you might like to know that it is so hot in London right now that I can't wear my glasses, which I need for reading, because they are steaming up. So if I um, can't read any of the pages that I want to talk about, you know why. So, Bobby, talk to me. What's your book this month? My book is August Town by Kai Miller. Had you heard of this one before? Never heard of it. I was surprised I hadn't, actually. It's not only did it have the most amazing endorsements on the cover, but it's his third novel, I think. Yeah, it is indeed. And and I also hadn't heard of him. I, I actually discovered this book in my favourite possible way, which is that uh, a few months ago, I walked into a charity shop. I saw it on the shelf. I'd never heard of it, picked it up, read the blurb, and just liked the sound of it. So I bought it which is probably how people used to buy books. Totally. And I really, really, really liked it. It's a great way to buy a book. Not only have you sought it out yourself rather than bought into the hype, which is not a criticism I do it to, but you sought it out in a secondhand bookshop. Great sourcing. Tell us what it's about. So Kai Miller is first and foremost a poet, a, a very celebrated Jamaican poet. Uh, Hilary Mantel was just one vocal fan of his poetry, but he also writes fiction. And this, his third novel, as you say, is a tense, taut little book set in the village of Augustown in Kingston, Jamaica. It mainly focuses on two stories at two different times. In the past, there's the real-life Jamaican preacher Alexander Bedward, who was the subject of ridicule because he claimed he could fly. Uh, and in the present, there's a six-year-old boy, Kaya, who has had his dreadlocks cut off by a teacher at school. Those are the two core things that kick it off, but mostly it's just a book about tension. The tensions between black and white, between Christianity and Rastafari, between light-skinned or dark-skinned Jamaicans, old and new, rich and poor, everything is threatening to blow up. And so the whole book feels like a, a gathering storm. It's defined throughout by this specific word in Jamaican dialect, ataclaps. We actually get a brilliantly tongue-in-cheek definition of that word about two-thirds of the way through the book. It is not the kind of word you will find in the Oxford Dictionary. But maybe if you were lucky enough to find a dictionary that had in it black people's words, then the entry for Ataclaps would read something like this. An impending disaster, calamity, trouble on top of trouble. It's so true that it reads like um, a gathering storm. I really loved that the whole book was centred around Ataclaps. Really satisfying words to say. And it really helps keep it cohesive because you're basically covering, as you say, there these these kind of joint dual narratives going on, which can make things feel quite chaotic to read. You're covering one day across the whole book. But then in the other sort of narrative, you're covering 60 years across the whole book. So, yeah, keeps it really cohesive that you're you're going towards the Ataclaps. Yeah, and it, it darts back and forth throughout time without warning, seemingly at random, but it's never dense or confusing, which is really, really difficult to do, I think. I, it's a really witty book, a really fast-paced book, very funny, 
and at the same time, it's really dark. August Town itself is described on the very first page as a dismal little valley on a dismal little island. He calls it a scar on the country, and then he mirrors that right at the beginning with the introduction of the hero, Martaffy, Kaya's grandmother, who narrates the story of Bedward, and who is blind and scarred on account of a ceiling of rats falling in and clawing out her eyes. Oh my God, her description of the rats and the way they haunt her, the sound of them shitting is like intermittent rain. I literally shudder. <laughs> and I think that the point is that August Town is immediately presented as this horrid, dreary place because that's what it is to an outsider. Or those in the kind of surrounding richer villages. That's exactly. how they look down on August Town. So even those very close to August Town feel like that. Because they're not just outsiders to, you know, the readers like us as Jamaicans. They're outsiders within Jamaica. That's where the the magic comes in, though, because it's a book about how faith and magic and belief can elevate an entire community. We spoke about magical realism last episode, that blurring of, of lines between the real world and the fantastical in fiction. We were speaking specifically about Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I think a lot of people rightly associate magical realism with the very rich tradition of, of Latin American literature because of Marquez and Isabel Allende and, and Borges, who is one of my all-time favourite authors, and the Disney film Encanto, of course. We don't talk about Bruno. Indeed, we don't. Um, and nowadays, when a lot of people think of magical realism, I think they think of, you know, outside of British writers like Salman Rushdie, Neil Gaiman, they probably look to Japan, Murakami, Sayaka Murata. But I think some of the best, most beautiful magical realism being written at the moment is coming out of the Caribbean. When I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of one of my absolute favourite books of last year, which is When We Were Birds by Ayana Lloyd-Banwo. She's a Trinidadian author, and both of these books are works of magical realist Caribbean fiction, both very heavily centre on the importance and the significance and the symbolism of a raster losing his dreadlocks because they're never supposed to be cut. No razor shall touch my head. And both books kind of ask you, the reader, to decide if the magical, otherworldly elements are just tall tales told by the older generation or really are supernatural. I think in that respect, Augustown actually has a bit of uh, Big Fish in it, which is another great story about tall tales. Or even Life of Pi, which is centred around the idea that, that fantastical stories can be real if you just believe them. I've never read Life of Pi. I... Missed the boat. But um, It's really interesting that Augustown reminds you of a Trinidadian book because the tone, the lyricism, the easiness of the read really reminded me of a Trinidadian book too. The Bread the Devil Need by Lisa Allen Agostini, which made the shortlist the year I was a judge on the Women's Prize for Fiction. I think it was last year but I've lost all sense of time since I had a child. Anyway, it melds this really vibey lady who owns a boutique and loves shopping and glamour with a relationship of violence and the history of violence on the island in an extremely deft way. A skein of tension runs throughout, but it's also a rip-roaring read. Bobby, if you haven't read it, I strong, hard recommend. <laughs> strong, hard recommend. Okay, well, I, I couldn't turn down a yeah, strong, strong, hard, hard. recommend. <laughs> It's a really bookish place, Trinidad. It's, it's where the um, the big Caribbean literary festival, Bocas, is, is held. But we digress. Back to Jamaica, back to magical realism. August Town plays with that classic magical realism conceit of making fantasy into reality through the power of belief in a really knowing way and in a way which is inseparable from what it has to say on race and on class. Just listen to this bit about halfway through. Look, 
This isn't magic realism. This is not another story about superstitious island people and their primitive beliefs. No, you don't get off that easy. This is a story about people as real as you are and as real as I once was before I became a bodiless thing floating up here in the sky. You may as well stop to consider a more urgent question, not whether you believe in this story or not, but whether this story is about the kinds of people you have never taken the time to believe in. I love that because that's what this whole book is about. It's real because the story doesn't belong to the reader and it doesn't belong to the... It doesn't belong to anyone but the people of Augustown, which is why when Bedward does or does not fly, depending on whether you believe the colonizers or the colonized, you get this line. If a man flies in Jamaica and only the poor will admit to seeing it, has he still flown? I thought that was an amazing line. It's such a huge, poignant point that only certain people and their stories are taken seriously and believed and seem to have value. And for a long time, and less so now, but still very much present. You could apply that to so many areas, publishing, politics, the news cycle, education, the care system, the health system. Anyway, it, it's just such a wonderful way of putting it. Any reviews that you agreed or disagreed with? The Observer described the language as clear as spring water, which I think is bang on because it's it's so clear. It's such a joy to read. I totally agree. When I read the blurb, I thought this could be a crunchy read. I know books like this, they're often quite dense. You have to keep really on the ball, shifting narratives, the magical realism, as you say, melding with reality. But it wasn't at all. I zoomed through it, never a dull moment, real economy of words, really enjoyed how easy it was to read, but how gorgeous some of the turns of phrases are. And the characterization too, I am a real sucker for character and the characters in this are so brilliant. Ma Taffy, Gina, Mrs. G, my God, the school teacher and his wife who only get married because of racism on both their parts. He wants a light-skinned wife and she has a fetish for dark-skinned black men. And that exploration of class within colorism is also done so well. You know, there's that moment where Gina, Kaya's mother, is sleeping with a white boy and he says he can't introduce her to his father, not because she's black, but because she's from Augustown. On the note, on the subject to Gina, are we reversing slightly on our spoiler warnings and not giving away what happens when the Attaclapse arrives? I, I feel quite strongly that this is one of those books which deserves not to be spoiled for anyone who hasn't read it yet. Interesting. Maybe going forward, do you know what? book chatters if you would prefer us not to give spoilers so you can listen to ones about books you haven't read let's let's not ruin the payoff the payoff really is actually like it's brilliant uh let's talk about how funny it is so sex between a woman and her gentleman friend is described as a conversation the ongoing conversation between miss nora and her husband the ongoing conversation between Miss Nora and her gentleman, Mars Bilby, eventually produced three daughters. And then the anecdote about Mr. Desmond and his wife, Monica, and how they have extremely loud sex with her shouting, he's going to kill me. But if anyone tries to intervene, she comes out naked and throws stones at them for interrupting her and her man. It's also just such a perfect anecdote about the undertone of violence in the community and the way that's a very comic scene. But also... She's shouting he's going to kill me because this is not something that's alien to any of the women who live there. There's another review I really like by Laura Miller in The New Yorker, which which I think hits the nail on the head about why this book is so good. Augustown doesn't match the stereotype of a poet's novel. That is, it isn't introspective, replete with long passages of description and scant of plot. And I do think that's true of books by poets. I, I, you know, I've read a few. I'm sure you've read 
a few as well. They can be incredibly florid and obsessed with form and, yes, introspective. But this is just a really entertaining read, even if it is, you know, taking part in a really important conversation as well. I totally agree. You can't tell he's a poet. To me, having never read his poetry, he's just completely a novelist. Although, as you say, there is, it's, it's very poetically written and it's beautifully written. So one of my favourite bits actually is a very kind of quiet, small bit, but it's the bit where... Uh, he describes Gina as loving Matthew in the way that teenage girls love their first loves, which is to say with extravagance, um, which I think is just so true. Uh, but it's also a riot to read. My, I think my favourite line was, uh, the guns were in the bags, but people still squinted at the shininess of them. And it felt afterwards that the shape of those guns became the shape of the entire day. I think that might be the best line in the book. Again, just the way that sketches out the undertone of violence visually is just brilliant so clearly we both loved it would you have changed anything i, d- I don't think so as as those reviews say it it feels really watertight everything in it is there for a reason and everything seems to tie together there's this idea of the floating priest which connects to the desire to float out of poverty which is symbolized by the raster who seems to be floating but has actually hung himself because he's lost his dreadlocks and then the rope itself looks like a dreadlock it's so intricate and there's so much stuff like that yeah, there's so much thinking. I'd love to see how he mapped all of this out or if those images just come to him fully formed. It's fantastically clever. But it's also actually quite thrillery. I found it so satisfying when we found out who Miss G was at the end of the book. Yeah, there's lots of um, twists and turns and, 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 and that real interconnectedness is like so good in the end, the way the, way the ending comes. I love an ending which comes together really satisfyingly, especially when you don't realize where all the separate plot strands are heading until it kind of hits you and you're left gawping i hate an ambivalent ending as why i absolutely hate arlington road that film i think about it every day how much it annoys me <laughs> i like things to be tied up in a really neat bow as well oh, finally we agree on something we like mm-hmm. we like something the same <laughs> we both like <laughs> we this both like book. a neat ending yeah <laughs> i had that recently with trespassers by louise kennedy i think that does it really well home fire by camilla shamsey Best ending mm, of all time. That. Best ending. I genuinely, I will make that claim. And this, which has a, has a final few pages that are so spine tinglingly perfect that I'm that you know I don't want to ruin them. I think that's 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 testament to how good the ending is. I imagine you will be reading more Miller then. Yes, I I definitely will. I'd really like to read his poetry actually, and and, and see what that's like. I mean, Kai Miller is he's actually a professor of creative writing at at, at Royal Holloway in London, but he's from Jamaica by birth and. What this book and those other books we were talking about made me realise is that I really want to read more Caribbean literature. I've, I've never read much, and now what I have read, I love. And I think that's exactly what this podcast is about, confronting our literary blind spots. We actually had a really great email, which I thought would be a good note to end this chat on, from um, Catherine at the Shelterbox Book Club. So they're a charity book club which raises money for international disaster relief by reading books from the countries and regions that they support. August Town just happens to be one of the books they've actually read as as part of that. Oh, brilliant venture. I love that um, MO. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's it's great. It's so it's such a, a clever, nice way of helping out. And and in that email, Catherine refers to that line that I loved: "If a man flies in Jamaica and only the poor will admit to seeing it, has he still flown?" And talks about how he, how how Kai Miller is articulating something really profound in relation to stories in general, especially stories from from places we in the UK and the US tend not to give a second thought. She said, "The books from the global majority have to be read in the West to count, 
What of the myriad stories from around the world that stay within their small communities? That's something the book touches on. I mean, we haven't really had time to talk about how much it says about storytelling and Anansi storytelling, which is an oral tradition in West Africa where nothing is written down, which means the stories can't travel in the same way. They're kind of kept in the community and passed down from generation to generation. And there's a sort of long running debate about what is lost when you do write down Anansi stories, you know, that the tradition is very much about telling it to someone else, like the story of Bedward and being reshaped within a community. And I think Catherine's point really keys into that, the magic and value in that community storytelling, even if it means we never get to read it over here which is why August Town is such a privilege to read, but I think it just reminds us of the myriad nature of storytelling. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Pandora, enlighten me. What book are you bringing to the table this month? Well, table is right because my book is Home Cooking by Laurie Colwyn. Have you read any Laurie Colwyn before, Bobby? Um, I haven't, actually. And I thought I'd heard of her, but then I realised I was thinking of uh, Laurie Moore. So, you know, you wait for one Laurie and two come along at once. Awful. Awful. Not even (laughs) quite yet a dad, and that is the utmost dad joke. I'd heard of her ambiently, like Armistead Maupin, and I kept being told to read her, but I didn't have any of her books. And then I got sent, I think it must be a new edition, they must be republishing or something, a new edition of Happy All the Time, which is one of her five novels. She also wrote three short story collections and two books of recipes and essays. And I was going to recommend that to you that we read for book chat. And then I thought, hold on, I remember that her most famous one is Home Cooking. You know, that's the one we should do. So I ordered it. I found a lovely old edition online. I recommended it to you. And it was only when I sat down on the beach in Cornwall and opened it that I realised it was about food. My (laughs) husband suggested that the title should have been the giveaway. And he's right. It's not exactly disguised, but I don't know. I thought she was a novelist. She is. She just has also written books about food. Um, I probably wouldn't have picked it had I known it was largely recipe-based. But um, I'm glad I did because I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. And you love food, so I thought you'd be okay. I do love food. I'm a a famous glutton. And who knew that home cooking would be about food? (laughs) I really enjoyed it, yeah. I, I, I like essays about food almost as much as I like food itself. No, so do I, actually. Like, I love Vittles, a newsletter all about food. So, yeah, uh, Home Cooking, funnily enough, is a collection of essays about food and lots of recipes by the novelist and food writer Laurie Colwyn. So it came out in 1988, and part of the cultness of this book is that it's really unpretentious. She has hardly any kitchen equipment. In fact, a lot of the book is dedicated to telling you what you do not need. (laughs) And a lot of her recipes comes from when she lives in a one-room flat in New York where three people could come for dinner if they sat on the bed. She was writing at a time where food was quite gatekeeper-y. You either had fine dining and 
three course dinner parties or you sort of had diners with burgers and chips she's kind of landed squarely in the middle extolling the virtue of really decent ingredients and really decent produce the new yorker put it so well in a retrospective where they wrote that her appeal was about being yourself in the kitchen she writes in her intro it is not just the great works of mankind that make a culture it is the daily things like what people eat and how they serve it. If she was around now, I reckon she'd be she'd become like a really big Nigel Slatery person, and her book would be called something like "Just Three Ingredients" or "The Home in Three." Probably not quite so cheesy, but I also think part of her legacy is that she died way too young. I think she was forty-eight when she died. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that, and it, it, it's really sad, especially when you read the bits about her, you know, trying new foods with her little daughter. The book does feel incredibly ahead of its time for what, like 1988. There's a there's a bit where she explains what veganism is, which felt really funny reading it now. Yeah, there's a lot of explaining of things. Obviously, food writing has come on so far now. You know, we've had myriad sensations like Nigella, who's a massive fan of hers. She's actually on the cover of the one I've got saying. Everything food writing should be funny, profound, inspiring, and unaffected. We've obviously got Jamie Oliver, Nigel Slater, they're all doing the sort of home cooking. But she was a pioneer, really, of that unpretentious simplicity. And as her great friend and publisher, Julia Annan, notes, she was writing about organic food and farmers' markets long before those things existed widely. And of course, along with Nora Ephron's heartburn, she was a pioneer of personal writing of memoir mixed with recipes and that stayed a winning formula you can see it in Ella Risbridge's Midnight Chicken which was fantastically successful a few years ago Dolly Alderton did a bit of that and everything I know about love and I think why people love that combo so much is that when you're talking about personal stuff and then you jump to food you're giving eating an emotional context which of course it has this reminded me a lot of heartburn yeah and and I, I love books like that as well one I would add to the list if we're doing our um high fidelity style desert island disc top five memoirs with recipes in is uh takeaway by angela hoy which came out last year that's about the author's experience growing up in her parents chinese takeaway in wales but it's a memoir so well so obviously it's a memoir but it's full of recipes like emergency freezer wontons or dad's off menu ribs I think I might have read uh, an extract or an interview she did about that in The Guardian. I've sort of got a visual memory of that. Yeah, that sounds great. Laurie Colvin was also a bit of a seer. This is something I think that could have been written in 2023. We live in a decade that worships speed, fast food, one-minute managers, six-minute gourmets, three-minute miles. We lace up our running shoes and dash off to get the fast track. We are far too busy to linger over a long, languid meal. Instead, we bolt a pint of yoghurt and suit up for a five-mile run or a corporate takeover. Another thing um, is that she really preempts the kind of allergies and intolerances sense check you have to do before a dinner party. She says she wishes she had a home computer to index all her friends we do have home computers so maybe we should index all our friends Bobby my stomach just kind of rolled over at bolting a pint of yogurt no weirdly mine made some quite odd noises as well I know that's a lot isn't it yeah that's too much (laughs) yogurt for anyone yeah I think the diet stuff for me felt felt almost the most 1980s element of it I was picturing all that stuff pertaining to to frizzy haired gymnasts in leg warmers yeah, there's a lot of guilt about not eating certain things, isn't there? Way more than there is now because people are very cloak and dagger about it now. No one's on a diet. It's all very wellnessy. They're eating clean or raw or alkaline or what have you. Whereas she was in the decade where it was just straight up dieting and 
you know, food deprivation. She was a homebody. She believed in home cooking. And it's a message that's still incredibly inspiring, actually. When I was reading this, I mean, it came to me at such a good time. I had a summer with my young children, you know, six weeks without childcare. And I decided I wanted to eat together every day. And so I really set about in the kitchen, which is not something I do that much. And it meant I read a lot less because I spent all my evenings doing copious amounts of washing up. So that is that is how I normally manage to read a lot because I don't cook. So I don't know how I'm going to combine that going forward. But I really found an emotional value I hadn't found before. Yeah, I mean, you know full well that I I love cooking, and I I really connected with the way that she speaks about her favorite thing being feeding people. There's you know there's nothing like it. I'm glad to hear you've caught the cooking bug, Pandora. Did did you cook a lot of home cooking from home cooking during this new dawn? No, I haven't yet. I'm not entirely sure how many of her recipes I loved. It was 1988, so tastes have changed, and her attitude to food and ingredients was actually very progressive. But I have no desire to eat the meatloaf. I would like to cook the baked chicken from the essay titled The Same Old Thing. Very much my husband's MO that he cooks the same chicken dish about four times a week. And I do love vegetable fritters and potato salad. And her sliced cucumbers with spicy dressing sound divine. But I don't know, am I am I really off base saying that I didn't fancy all the recipes? What did you feel like? No, I think you're um I think you're I think you're right. They were they <sighs> It is a lot of stuff like meatloaf, a lot of very 80s American stuff. I did like the sound of chicken with chicken glaze. I might give that a try. That one's surprising that the chicken has a chicken glaze. Also, just amazing how much time something would take. Come back in 18 hours. I would be like, I would have completely forgotten 18 hours later, which is just a reminder how things take the time they take. I did find some of her attitudes like a mismatch. Well, for me reading, she hates picnics and grilling i love both of them a grilled steak is the equivalent of 700 cigarettes what i was also baffled by her bit on the microwave or rather the microwave but then i did do some googling and i found out the microwaves were one of the biggest health myths of the 80s they thought they caused cancer did you know that i i didn't but i i did know about because she talks about eggs being being a bit of a villain too because because at the time people still thought they caused high cholesterol which isn't i think that's been debunked since don't get talking to my dad about that. He's a big egg guy, and he he often complains that for many years he was warned off eating eggs for that reason. He still rues those years. It's so funny how those things change. <laughs> all those eggs he could yeah, have eaten. All those eggs he could have eaten. I remember when everyone was terrified of salt, and now apparently it's sort of okay again. Anyway, I may not have loved all her food, but I did love her writing. Um, I loved her turns of phrase, which just comes from reading a book you know, 35 years later, she says when she's obsessed with potato rosti, I'm so with her. She says she is hipped on the dish and something is a snap to make. People who like meat are red-blooded chow hounds. And she relays what one person says to her when they come around for dinner. She's very honest about her culinary mistakes. Hey, wouldn't it be groovy if we could just dump this in the garbage and go out for dinner? (laughs) It reminded me of Bridget Jones and her blue soup. I I got big blue soup vibes from that as well. What I do really love about her is, and this keys into her appeal, I think, which is just that she's so simple and generous and unshowy. She shares in this just very straightforward way that she volunteers at a centre for homeless women. and That's where she learns to cook good food on a shoestring budget for vast quantities of people. It's probably my favourite essay, Feeding the Multitudes, that one. She writes, not one of them was like another. They were and are the most surprising group of people I have ever encountered. And not a single assumption can be made about them, except that they are all living in a horrible way. I just really think you get a sense of the type of person she is, and it makes reading her even more enjoyable. She also just seems like, 
you'd have a lot of fun at one of her dinner parties. She seems like she seems really nice. Sitting on the bed and eating out of the sink like they had to do in her tiny flat. What was your favourite essay? I really liked the one about baking bread, quote unquote, without agony, uh, about the time it takes and about how you have to how you have to give over a whole day at least in pursuit of the perfect loaf. Long-term fans of my Instagram stories, hi again, mum, uh, will know that I am a prolific baker of sourdough, uh, and that is really a labour of love. Baked some this morning, the, the, the smell is still wafting through the house. And I hate it when people say this about wanky things like baking sourdough, but it is a meditation. It's a very labour-intensive process, almost as labour-intensive as having to listen to a man explain to you the process behind baking sourdough. It's like we've gone back to 2020. I was actually watching, this is why I can't keep Instagram on my phone, I was watching like um, Mormon farmer with seven children making making bread. I think she was making oatmeal sourdough, actually. And I could not believe how long it took. Well, there you go. That's, my, that's a window into my future. Well, yeah, seven, seven children in Utah. Quite a lot of lost in translation bits for me. I've got no idea what a Dutch oven is. I can actually tell you what a Dutch oven is because it's what I bake my sourdough in. Oh, my God. I forget I asked. What is it? It's a, it's a, a circular Le Creuset-style casserole dish with a heavy lid. Anyway, I agree on the lost in translation elements. A lot of the things she talks about are either very American or very 80s, as I said before, or a bit of both. She'll be like... Hey, you ever get a craving for boiled beef? <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I, I don't know what that is. I've never had a craving for boiled beef. In fact, for some reason, that slightly makes my stomach turn. I'm probably just missing a trick. Like a pint of yogurt. Boiled beef and a pint of yogurt. Oh, I always love when she shares her own Lost in Translation bits. Like when she comes to England and she has um, double cream for the first time. It's just not a thing in the States, she says, which is obviously really funny to read because... I have it fairly fairly regularly. I also really love the word scallion. I can never understand why it's a spring onion, though. It really sounds like a crustacean. Don't you think a scallion should live in the sea? See, I always thought it sounds like an ailment, like something you'd, you'd have on your foot. That's so true. <laughs> Mind out for my scallion. Like a bunion. Yes, <laughs> yes. Good baby names, though. Yeah, there you go. Scallion and boiled beef. Um, I really liked that essay on English food because it's really funny. And in the same way that we're talking about weird Americanisms, she shines a light on some of the things that we think are really normal, like the insistence on having a Sunday roast, whatever the weather. She says, I learned that even when the papers bore the banner headline, phew, what a scorcher, the meal never varied. You might sit around the swimming pool at someone's country house and still emerge to be fed roast leg of lamb, roast potatoes, two vegetables and dessert. I'm so glad that has kind of ebbed away because that really is the story of my childhood of having a roast every single Sunday for the entire of the 90s. And I, I actually can't, I actually really don't like roasts now. Well, that's what my seven children will be having. <laughs> I loved all the ones as well when she goes on dates to terrible dinners, like the dinner a man called Richard takes her to. And he keeps saying, you know, this man is a genius. We've got to go for dinner at his house. He's a genius. And then this genius man serves him a revolting dinner with one sausage and one pineapple ring each. And she's like, what is that? And he says, well, you know, that's what geniuses eat. And it brings me nicely to another favourite essay, Kitchen Horrors. She writes, a really first-rate disaster passes into legend. My sister and I have never forgotten the salmon loaf, our mother, an excellent cook made when we were little. Do you have any first-rate disaster legends? I'm bad on timing, so several times I've, I've underestimated how long it takes to make homemade pasta and ended up serving dinner at midnight. How about you? Yes, I have a few. Probably the worst, and my husband is actually traumatised by this, is when I was making cookies and I poured in a cup of fish sauce instead of maple <laughs> syrup. 
<laughs> in my defense i was making a curry at the same time i'm but i'm not a deft enough cook for that level of ingredients and multitasking to exist in in the same small area what is indefensible is that having no other pudding i tried to save the cookies by merely doubling the quantities of everything else so another round of butter another round of sugar and another round of syrup hoped it might have sort of exiled the world's strongest taste which is fish sauce i gave one to my husband when they came out of the oven and he gagged he called them fish biscuits. And yeah, he frequently kind of cites that moment as the moment in which his life was ruined forever, really. I did not expect such a good kitchen horror story. <laughs> I've got others, but we, we haven't got time. Uh, I'd like to say <laughs> I, I think differently after after that, but I, I think it kind of tracks. And I don't know what that says about you as a person. Anyway, we, we've kind of covered this, but how's this book aged as a book? Yes, it is an on-brand kitchen disaster. Uh, I think it still feels really relevant. The language and the tools can feel esoteric, but the message is as, as heartwarming and necessary as ever, which is to slow down and you know, live more simply. And as we always ask, would you have changed anything? More recipes that I liked. Sorry. Yeah, I I felt the same. You know, I would have. I I there wasn't really any recipe that I wanted to. I wanted to go off and and make. And I think that is a that's a timing. That's like reading any old cookbook, isn't it? Times have changed. Will you be reading more Laurie Colwyn, though? Yes, because I've actually never read her as a novelist. I mean, obviously, I thought I was, but I bought a, um, a book about food writing. I'd love to see how her simple, quite bossy, intimate, curious, non-judgmental tone translates into fiction. How about you? She's a really fun writer to read, so I'm looking forward to seeing how she how she brings that to a novel. <laughs> that's all we've got time for today thanks as ever for listening please do keep those great emails coming we'd love to hear your kitchen horror stories and you can drop us an email at bookchatpod at gmail.com our next episode will be coming your way in october as long as my impending baby doesn't make a surprise early appearance our books for next month are the bluest eye by tony morrison and are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, by Judy Bloom. That's going to be a goodie. Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes, me and Bobby Palmer, him, with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes, again. 